The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That has not always been true in my life. Far more often than I've gotten it right, I've gotten it wrong. And I'm not sure whether it is fear or ambivalence. If it's fear, then I'm afraid to speak of the gospel in a culture that is, it just feels more tense, more uh, fragile and vitriolic out there. And I know that Christians and evangelicals who like to get people saved in particular have a bad reputation. We talk more than we listen. In fact, the research that I've read shows that this is one of the greatest areas of need among Christians. Most Christians believe that people who are not Christians consider their efforts to be genuine. But in fact, most people who are not Christians do not believe our efforts to evangelize are genuine. They see it as manipulative. And so if it's fear, it's because I don't want to be that guy <laughs> that can't change his mind and he won't change the subject. If it's ambivalence, it's because I get into conversations and for the life of me, I cannot connect what this person's problems really are with the good news of Jesus Christ. Most people who talk to me do not tell me that their problem is sin. They don't think they need forgiveness. And so to march out a gospel that speaks of forgiveness in a conversation where somebody has not even mentioned sin or the need for it feels manipulative. It feels, uh, uh, at best, extraneous. And at worst, it feels small like a 50 cent answer to a $10 problem. So far more often than I've gotten it right, I've gotten it wrong. The opportunity to speak of the gospel is there, and whether it is fear or ambivalence, I do not seize that opportunity. What is needed, I think, is a way to have spiritual conversations in ways that are more natural. A spiritual conversation is a conversation uh, that is open source. It does not proceed along prescripted lines. Both people care about the subject. 
One of them doesn't care more than the other one cares. If that happens, that's called leading somebody in a conversation. But in inauthentic conversation, no one is really leading it. Both parties are asking good questions and neither party knows where the conversation is going from here. Spiritual conversations tend to move at their own speed. In fact, it's when you push a conversation too early into the next level is where we run into problems. It's when we think this conversation has to end in this way and I have to steer it in that direction, we run into problems. So one of the things I need to learn is uh, how to have a spiritual conversation about a subject that I know a lot about. Two things seem important in this. One is I have to have a thorough knowledge of the subject. I have to know what I'm talking about. And two, I have to be able to listen well and ask intelligent questions from the other person. And I have to be willing to adjust and be flexible and adapt and keep the conversation, as I say, open source. Are you with me? Think about any subject that you can talk freely about. Say your kids, for instance. If someone comes up to you and asks you questions about your kids, you don't drop the record on a series of talking points because you know your kids. You're with them every day, sometimes too often. So you don't need talking points. So a spiritual conversation is an organic, natural conversation that goes in places neither one is sure where it's going. I know a lot about it, but I haven't memorized anything. So you can ask any question you want, and I can ask about yours, and the conversation just rolls. Some generations, mine for instance, we had the first element, but not the second. We had a thorough knowledge of the subject, but we didn't know how to listen. We knew the subject. We knew the human condition and the power of God to overturn that human condition. What we didn't know is how to ask intelligent questions so the person could get there on their own. 
We didn't preserve the integrity of the other person in our attempt to lead them to Christ. And so the next generation came along and got better at the second than at the first. They got very good at listening to people's problems, at being with them in those problems as they would say, living the questions or doing life together. But they were not so sure about the human condition or about God's power to overturn that because they'd never seen a miracle. They'd never seen God do something that only God could do. And so while they were good at listening and empathizing, they didn't have a supernatural answer. Jesus was both. This is how Jesus came preaching. We always think of that as a set of sermons that Jesus preached, but the way Jesus came preaching was thoroughly aware of his subject and yet at the same time sensitive to the person that he was talking to, and he was able to adjust what he was saying so it matched the person he was talking to, and he could give them an intelligent, meaningful answer. If there was a generation of people who knew how to do that, <laughs> they knew the gospel really well, but they listened really well and they adjusted what they knew so it applied directly to what they were hearing, it would be explosive. But have you wondered what is the gospel Jesus came preaching? What is the gospel he knew? If the gospel is what Paul said it was in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, then it hadn't happened yet. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, this is my gospel. Jesus was crucified for our sins according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. But if Jesus came preaching the gospel, that hadn't happened yet. That was still three years in the future. So the question is, if the gospel is only the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then what gospel did Jesus preach? Because it would be three years before that actually happened. So what is it that he knew and what was he trying to convey to people that he could bend and adjust it to the listener? Well, it turns out that the gospel is not so much in the Bible a message as it is an act. It's a scene in an ongoing drama. 
If one studies the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, they find not so much a plan of salvation, they find a pattern of salvation. And the pattern occurs again and again, repeatedly throughout the scriptures. And each time it occurs, it occurs in a deeper, more powerful and comprehensive way until it finally occurs once and for all in Jesus Christ. But, but there's a pattern here. There's not lines to memorize. There's a series of movements that unpack what the gospel is throughout the scripture. And that's the meaning of this board. You like it when we draw, don't you? And if you don't, close your eyes and just listen. Throughout the scriptures, four things happen. One is there's a struggle. There's a conflict in powers that are over our head. You and I are caught in this struggle. There is nothing we can do because it's bigger than us. If you're living in the day of Moses, then the struggle is an argument between Yahweh and Pharaoh, and you're laying bricks in the brickyard, and you have no control over this fight that God is having with Pharaoh. But that fight has immediate consequences on your life. Your life is harder because Yahweh and Pharaoh are involved in a conflict. You can do nothing about it. It's way too big for you. In the middle of that conflict, someone busts in and they make an announcement. And the announcement is that God has seen your struggle. He's remembered the promises that he made years ago to your granddaddies. And he's moved. And he's fixing to do something. In fact, he's already started. God is getting ready to overturn the order of things. So if you're in the brickyard, the announcement is God has heard your cries. He has remembered his covenant and he has decided to act in a single individual named Moses. That announcement always calls for some kind of response. To respond to that announcement throughout scripture is far more than just agreeing with it. In scripture, when one hears this grand announcement to respond or to believe or to have faith in that announcement is to actually risk something in your life on behalf of that announcement. You can't simply say, 
I agree with that, that's true. You have to say, because that's true, I'm going to enlist. So the proper response to the gospel is never simply belief. It's always the form of enlistment, involvement, becoming part of this thing that God is going to do in our day. You still there? Then, as the people of God begin to respond, there is ultimately a change in their circumstance. God overturns the order of things. He does here exactly what he said he would do there. The trouble is, it almost never happens all at once. And it almost always requires your involvement. But very slowly, God begins to change the condition. And those people who have experienced change, what do they find? But a couple years later, they are in another struggle. And this is why every five years in my life, I start thinking, I don't think I was saved five years ago. <laughs> I mean, I know I am today, but I wasn't five years ago. I didn't get it five years ago. And this has happened every five, six years in my life. I know this is rattling some of you who are clinging, to, but do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? It's a cycle that keeps repeating itself in my life. Every few years, I find myself in a struggle. God breaks in, makes an announcement. I find it hard to believe, but he calls for me to believe it. And when I respond, he changes the circumstance. I find myself in a whole new state of struggle. If this were a class, I'd say, questions? But it's not, so buckle up. <laughs> this is what's happening in Isaiah chapter 55. This is the invitation that was just read by these people on the platform. If you read it in slow motion, we won't right now, but this is exactly what you heard. There is a struggle or there's a problem and the problem is thirst. All who are thirsty come and drink. This one's going to break. The response or the announcement in the midst of that thirst is come and drink. I know what you're going to say. The pastor told us to drink. The appropriate response in verses 6 and 7 is to seek the Lord and turn from your ways. And then as you do this, the change begins to occur and the person begins to flourish. Their life bursts forth in song and in joy and the places that were dry begin to come alive with new life. But that's the sequence. We start out with thirst. He offers 
a filling or a satiation from that thirst, our response is to turn from the things we're addicted to and begin to seek the Lord. And as we do this, he causes our life to flourish. Well, makes perfect sense to me. Please know, church, that the problem here is thirst, not sin. Sin is what you do to quench a thirst. Nobody sins for the sake of the sin. They sin for what they believe the sin will do for them. It will quench my thirst. Aristotle says that a man cannot understand his thirst until he knows what satisfies it. Until a person has tasted water, he doesn't really understand his thirst. He just knows that everything he's been drinking so far doesn't work. And so thirst describes a spiritual condition of longing and striving and wanting and never being satisfied. He's talking about people that are always reaching for the next relationship or the next adventure. It's the next achievement. And there is this fallacy that if I can just get that, then I will be full. And the problem is not that they never get it. The problem is that they get it and are never full. They don't understand their thirst. And I am not now describing people in the world. I'm describing Christians. I'm describing people in this room who have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're still thirsty. You're still looking for a relationship that will make everything just right. And you haven't found it yet, have you? You're thinking if you can just get one more degree, put that on my wall, then I can step back. But you've got about four up there and it hasn't worked, has it? You think if I can just make a little more money, then I will feel secure. And you're a Christian. Jesus has forgiven your sins, but he has not quenched your thirst. Thirst is not a problem that sinners have. Thirst is a human condition. 
and professing Jesus as your Savior does not quench that thirst unless you can match what he's doing with the nature of your thirst. And there are Christians in the room right now who still do not believe sin is their biggest problem. Because it isn't. Sin is what you're into because you're thirsty. So what are these conditions? The people that I talk to about life don't, um, they don't admit to thirst. But with Isaiah, now I know that's what it is. I just know that thirst looks like different things in different people. So for some people, thirst looks like bondage. For other people, thirst looks like despair. For others, it looks like loneliness. For others, it looks like shame. For others, it's a, like a sickness. The Bible describes people who are withered up crippled, shriveling away. It's a form of thirst. So part of the witnessing is listening to the person's condition long enough to discern the nature of their thirst. If I come into that conversation just throwing out answers, before I know the disease, it's going to feel more like a placebo than it is a cure. So rule number one is I have to help people find the language for their thirst. That's where the questions come in. You still there? Rule number two is I have to speak or announce a cure that is commensurate with the problem. So the cure for bondage is freedom. And the cure for despair is hope. The cure for loneliness is union. The cure for shame is innocence. The cure for sickness is wellness. Wait for it. And what the evangelical church has done in my entire life is they have offered people a 50 cent answer to a $10 problem. We've come into people's lives and says, here's what Jesus offers you. He offers you the forgiveness of sin. He offers you reconciliation with God or peace with God. He offers you eternal life or heaven. 
Can you understand why this is not interesting? Because a person does not want forgiveness. He wants freedom. And when we come in and offer him forgiveness, it feels small. It is small. He does not want reconciliation even if he needs it. He wants union with God. He wants what Jesus said in John 14, that I may be in you as the Father is in me. He wants that for himself. And when we come in and say God is offering you the forgiveness of sins and peace, the dude is thinking, I didn't even know I was at war with God till I talked to you. But he already has a natural thirst to ground his life in the one who gave him life. He doesn't have the language for it. And when a person is seeking life that is growing and getting larger and we offer him heaven, you can understand why this is a little underwhelming. Dude, I'm religious. I'm one of you. And even I'm bored with that. Because my problem is not that I'm not going to heaven. My problem is that I'm not alive. I don't have language for this, but I'm a walking dead person. I'm trying to quench something and I can't find a solution. And everything I try attaches itself to me and it starts enslaving me. And pretty soon I don't have options. I'm just stuck with it, despairing. I need someone to come into my life and listen intelligently. And then speak. Jesus has come so that we might have life. Steve, you're dying. You just don't know it. You're a slave. You don't know it. You're chasing, chasing. Still haven't found what you're looking for. But you don't know it. Because you're religious. And you did everything those religious people told you to do. had a conversation with a man in um, Mexico. Uh, the last time I was there, we found out, didn't we, Bo, that the man had come down to Mexico City, kill himself. Didn't know it. All we knew was we were gathering in the lobby and the man kept hanging around. He wouldn't go away. And... Um, then he asked the second day if he could join us for breakfast. We said, yeah, sure. So he joined us. He talked about us. He never talked about himself. And on the third day, we discovered that the man had actually come down, kill himself. 
but he wouldn't say why. And um, on the fourth day, we went to church. And it was in church that the man sat about three-fourths back, I think it was, and he looked up and he saw Rick West. Rick West is in our group. All this guy knew was that about seven years ago, he tried to get into Cuba. There was no way to get into it unless he connected with a guy named Rick West, knew nothing of him. Now, all of a sudden, he's sitting about three-fourths of the way back with that in his background, and this guy announces Rick West is going to get up, and he looks up and says, is that like Rick West, Cuba guy? Yeah, that's him. He's blown away by this. He gets up. He has to leave the service. He stays out of it for like a half hour. He comes back. By the way, Mexican services, wow. So this is just like an intermission. He comes back. He sits through the rest of the service, and he still hasn't told his story. Following morning, we got up, went to the market. We were going to buy some stuff, and he started a conversation. He's in the car, and he says, man, these Mexican people, they are incredible. I said, what do you mean? He said, I mean, they are so happy, and, 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 and they just, like, they really like each other. And, and he said, I've never seen anything like that. I said, dude, that ain't the Mexicans. That's Jesus. <laughs> I said, you remember when you left that church they had to escort us home. But when you got inside that gate of that church, he said, yeah, the people, I said, they were alive. There was love. There was a belonging. There was a connection. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it before. I said, that's Jesus in the Mexicans. He says nothing. Because the preacher just let that one go. The conversation goes nowhere until we unload and start walking to the market. And um, he stays back and starts to talk. Why are you guys here? I tell him why we came down. But why would you do that? I said, well, because the same thing that is in the Mexicans is in us. And God has sort of brought us together with the Mexicans. And we're forming this bond. This We actually love each other. But you don't know. I know. But we actually are learning to love each, each other. It's crazy, isn't it? He says, I wish I had it. Then I said, tell me your story. He starts to confess the sins that he's committed. He confesses the crimes that he's committed back in the States. I said, I heard you came to kill yourself. Why? He said, because that's better than going back. If I go back, I lose control of my life. And they'll take it from me. So I'll just take it myself. He said, you won't tell anybody what I did, will you? I said, not even my wife. He said, what do you say to someone like this? I said, dude, it looks to me like God has set you up, but you don't know it. You came down to Mexico to kill yourself, and you ended up in the lobby with a bunch of Christians. 
And not only that, but these Christians actually like each other. They weren't arguing or fighting. And then you went to church and you saw another bunch of Christians and they love each other too. And then halfway through the service, you met the guy that you hadn't even seen for seven years. So it seems to me that you came down to get away from your life and you ran smack dab into God. I think he set you up. He said, are you sure of that? I said, is there a better explanation? I haven't heard it. There's a, you guys are in the market now, shopping, trying to find me a blanket. He said, I can't believe if there is a God that he would speak to me. I started laughing. I said, every one of those people, including me, felt the same thing. In fact, I feel it now. I hear from God pretty consistently, and every time I can't believe it. Why? Really? All the time. He said, what do you think I should do? I said, what do you think God wants you to do? There's a pause. He says, I think he wants me to go back and trust him. I said, what is it that keeps you from doing that? He said, fear, I'll lose control. I said, do you think God wants to make your life better or worse? He said, better. Then I said, I bet you can trust him. If you think he wants you to go back, Maybe you should go back. All right, maybe I will. I said, if you were to go back, what would be the first step? He said, I would need someone to walk me to the gate. I said, and if you decide to do that, who do you need to help you? He said, you. I want you to walk me to the gate this afternoon and make sure I get on the plane. I said, I'll walk you to the gate. I think our flight left at four, his left at two. And I and one other person walked him to the gate. I remember praying with him. Saying, God, here is a man that came running away from you. And he's run smack dab into you. You must love him. But he doesn't know how to trust you. He just knows that he probably can. If he gets on this plane today, will you take charge of his life from this point on? Amen, or something like that. When I got back, I called him. His name was Mike. I said, Mike, what happened? He said, it's incredible. Steve, it's incredible. I got back here and I went to confess and people already knew. <laughs> I said, what are they going to do? He said, it's not going to be anything like what I thought it was going to be. It's like, it's like God has just set this whole thing up. I said, no. Mike, you have got to find a church. He's in some other state. I think 
Pennsylvania. He's in, you've got to find a community that you can be part of. You have to be part of that community and let that community shape you. Here's where I'm going with this. Most spiritual conversations arise when we're not looking for a spiritual conversation, but we just listen and we know what we're listening for. And the thing that we're hearing has already happened in our own lives. We're not giving people instructions. That's not good news. That's called good advice. We're telling people what has happened to us. And we're bringing them to Jesus. Would you bow your heads? As last week, I want to give you a series of um, questions. First, What is the nature of your own struggle? I know most of you are Christians and your sins are forgiven. But I'll bet there's still some kind of dis-ease in you. Can you name it? Second, what has God done or what is he doing now to overturn that? And third, how can you participate? What would you risk? What might you need to believe or do in order to participate in this thing that God has done to overturn your struggle? Hear the word of the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of your salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Even though you've not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are even now, even still receiving the end, the result of your faith which is the salvation of your souls.